millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everybody. Today's show is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. You see, Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that are a fraction of the price of mattresses one can purchase in the store. The mattress industry has, for too long, forced consumers to pay notoriously high markups, and Casper has had enough. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of their mattresses through cutting up the middleman, the retailer, and selling directly to you, the consumer. Now, you see, for years I've had trouble finding a mattress that has the perfect blend of bounce and stiffness until I finally received my own Casper mattress. Casper mattresses provide resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort, and this has literally changed the quality of my sleep overnight. Ha! A hybrid sleeping product that combines premium memory foam with latex foam, it has become the most awarded mattress of the last decade. Uh, mattresses start at $500, and they go as high as $950 for a California king-size mattress. These are great prices. If you, like me, are tired of expensive mattresses not actually making your quality of sleep any better, it is incumbent upon you, my friend, to go out and get one. Casper mattresses are easy to purchase, and you can do so risk-free. Casper offers free delivery right to your door, and if you are not satisfied with your purchase, you can return it within a hundred days at no cost. Let's be honest, guys and girls, lying on a mattress for a couple of minutes in a showroom is simply not enough time to tell if that is the right mattress for you. Now, Casper is willing to give the listeners of Cool Canadian History $50 off their first purchase. All you need to do is go to the link caspertrial.com slash history. That's Casper, C-A-S-P-E-R, trial, T-R-I-A-L dot com slash history. Get your purchase, get your mattress, sleep better now. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, the final episode of Season 4, Episode 17, From Colony to Nation, Canada's Interwar Move to Independence. In the aftermath of the First World War, there was a catastrophic and dramatic change throughout the world. In Canada, recession and instability rocked the country for many years. However, one of the enduring legacies of the war was Canada's significant military contribution and success. 
This legacy gave many younger Canadian politicians in the interwar period a new sense of Canadian self and a modern notion of Canada's role within the British Empire, a role that would evolve dramatically in the 1920s and 1930s. Today's book recommendation is Mackenzie King in the Age of Dictators, Canada's Imperial and Foreign Policy. This is by Roy McLaren and published by McGill Queen's Press in 2019. It's a well-written and dramatic account of Mackenzie King's foreign policy, both within the British Empire and regards to the growing threat of Mussolini and Hitler, and it sort of parallels what we will be talking about today, these great international challenges as Canada emerges onto the international scene. Today's episode goes out to a special dedicated supporter and listener of the program, Carolyn Goodwin. We thank you for your continued support of the program, and we hope you enjoy every episode as much as the last. So, as many listeners to Cool Canadian History know, Canada's contribution to the First World War was far and above anything anyone in Canada or even in Britain expected. Canada put over half a million people in uniform. It suffered just over 60,000 dead, over 170,000 casualties in all. For a population of just over 7 million people, this meant just over 3% of the population had been wounded or killed in battle. As a comparative, Britain had just over 5% of its total population wounded or killed during World War I. So in terms of percentages, Canada's sacrifice was significant for the young and relatively small country. Not to mention the fact that by the end of the war, the Canadian Corps was spearheading the final offensive on the deciding front and played a leading role in helping to crush German resistance and bring about an end to the war. Arthur Curry, the commander of the Canadian Corps, was slated for promotion had the war gone into 1919, and British Prime Minister David Lloyd George even discussed the possibility of replacing Field Marshal Douglas Haig with Curry, though this was little known at the time. Thus, it is safe to say that many post-war Canadian politicians carried with them a newfound confidence, both in the state's ability to wage total war and in the Canadian ability to play an important part in any conflict. Of course, all of this confidence did not cover up the fact that Canada in the immediate post-war period was an economic wreck and a country that was divided along many lines, specifically amongst French Canadians, English Canadians, the working class, and the middle class. Regardless, Canada's efforts in the First World War led many to believe that Canada's post-war international role, and indeed its post-war role within the British Empire, would now change. In terms of Canada's role in the international order, this came via the League of Nations. The League of Nations was created in the aftermath of the First World War, a predecessor to the modern-day United Nations. It was intended to be a forum where all countries could diplomatically resolve their differences without resorting to another catastrophic 
war. Unfortunately, the American president who spearheaded the formation of the League, Woodrow Wilson, shocked the powers of the world when he announced that the U.S. would not actually join it. Wilson was facing a fairly serious domestic push for a return to American isolationism. The Americans were expected to bring the teeth, which would allow the League to become effective. Instead, the American refusal to join meant the League was doomed from the start. Almost from November 12, 1918, various nations politically jostled, diplomatically wrestled, and outright fought each other for a variety of reasons. It seemed like the old world would fall back into its historical pattern of feudal-like competition. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Regardless, the League did give an opportunity for many young and smaller countries to engage on an international level. Canada was no exception. It saw itself as an emerging middle power, a leading nation amongst Britain's former colonies, and a country that came from a continent that had largely avoided large-scale war for nearly a century. For many Canadian politicians, the League was an opportunity to lecture their European cousins on the benefits of peace and cooperation along the Anglo-Canadian-American model, and to do away with the historic rivalries that had ripped that continent apart so many times. But of course, no one listened. Despite the failure to transmit this rather arrogant message, Canada certainly looked at the League as one step forward in its own gradual emergence as an equal nation amongst many of the older nations in the world, particularly within Europe and particularly within the British Empire itself. In fact, many younger English-speaking Canadians were clamoring for a revised role within the British Empire, not as a subordinate colony of the British Crown, but an equal nation in its own right. And the first expressions of this new attitude were made apparent during the 1922 Chanak Crisis. Chanak is a small Turkish seaport on the Dardanelles, a narrow strait connecting the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. The Dardanelles are a crucial shipping lane, as well as the geographical link between Europe and Asia. Now stationed in Chanak was a British garrison, ensuring the neutrality of the strait and its port. Basically, it was making sure that no one single country, Turkey in particular, could seize the Dardanelles and cut off shipping traffic. The Strait's neutrality had been guaranteed in the post-World War I settlement and effectively imposed upon a defeated Turkey. However, by 1922, a new, more aggressive Turkish government was in power and sought to seize the strait and reimpose Turkish authority in the strategically important waterway. 
Britain immediately responded and sent ships to support its garrison, potentially facing a Turkish attack. The Canadian Conservative Party, at the time the official opposition in government, called for Canada to send ships and men to support the British. All the world seemed focused on Chanuk and the potential for another war. However, the Liberal Prime Minister at the time, Mackenzie King, shocked the ruling elite and the politicians back in London when he announced that he would not be authorizing Canadian ships or Canadian men to go overseas. In fact, King stated that Canada would not be thrust into another war simply because Britain's interests felt threatened. The decision would be left to Canada's Parliament and Canada's Parliament alone. This was a momentous announcement for a Canadian Prime Minister. Up to this point, Canadian support for British imperial defense was nearly a foregone conclusion, especially when considered from the viewpoint of the politicians in London, England. Mackenzie King was accused by his political and public opponents of betraying the British Empire, while his supporters argued that a blank check for the British Empire was what got Canada so deeply involved in the horrors of the First World War. It is quite possible, given the support King had both within his own party and amongst the public, that the Canadian government could have declared and might have declared neutrality if war actually broke out. However, by the time the Canadian Parliament met, the crisis had passed with Britain and Turkey agreeing to a diplomatic solution. Before we continue, I just want to remind everybody that you can find us on all your podcast listening devices, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate, let's say, two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon will allow you to do that. And they just take it right off your credit card or right out of your bank, so you don't even have to worry about it. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history podcast. As well, on our Facebook page, and on iTunes. You can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you. Please don't be shy, and please don't hesitate to recommend us to all your podcast listening friends. Now back to the program. Now, Mackenzie King was not done asserting a greater sense of Canadian autonomy. In 1923, only a year after the Chanuk Crisis, King once again challenged historical convention when it came to the Halibut Treaty. Up until 1923, Canada could not independently sign its own trade treaties. In fact, a representative from the British government not only needed to be there to formally sign, but often Britain took the lead in negotiating any deals on behalf of Canada. However, Mackenzie King simply ignored this. Canadian and U.S. representatives met to hash out a deal over halibut fishing in American and Canadian waters. Much to Britain's chagrin, King's diplomats hammered out a deal with the Americans. 
The British Foreign Office protested this action. Mackenzie King ignored it. And the Halibut Treaty was signed with no British representative present. Now, a new precedent was set for Canadian diplomacy. The country would be conducting its own trade negotiations. Thank you very much. At this point, it was fairly clear to the British government that Canada was vying for a revision in its relationship to Great Britain, not a relationship that meant one separate from the empire, but one that saw Canada as a mature, equal nation within the empire. And it wasn't just Canada either. Many of the white dominions of the empire, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Newfoundland, were all clamoring for greater detachment from the parental nature of the British colony relationship. Effectively, the kids were growing up, and they didn't want Mother Britannia lording over everything they did. Thus, it was at the 1926 Imperial Conference where this was finally recognized publicly. The 1926 Imperial Conference was the latest in a decades-long tradition of the Dominions meeting in London to discuss matters pertaining to the Empire and the nations within it. It was here that the Dominions, that is, the semi-independent countries of the British Empire, came to argue for a greater recognition of their independence by London. This recognition came with the Balfour Declaration of 1926. Now, not to be confused with a more famous Balfour Declaration back in 1917. The 1926 Balfour Declaration was a declaration that came out of the discussions at the conference. In fact, it was an idea originally proposed by the then Prime Minister of South Africa. This declaration stated, and I quote, that the dominions are autonomous communities within the British Empire, equal in status, in no way subordinate one to another in any aspect of their domestic or external affairs, though united by a common allegiance to the crown and freely associated as members of the British Commonwealth of Nations. This is the first time that we hear the term commonwealth instead of the empire a term that would be used more and more going forward to replace this more archaic idea of empire. This declaration established the principle that the dominions are equal in status and autonomous communities within the British Empire, not subordinate to the United Kingdom or to London. However, it is worth pointing out that at this point, while recognized as independent within the Commonwealth, they were yet to be legally independent, meaning a law still had to be passed in the London Parliament to make the Balfour Declaration a legal reality. This process occurred at the Imperial Conference of 1930. It was here that the Conservative Prime Minister of Canada, R.B. Bennett, who had recently defeated King in a federal election, along with the heads of the Dominions of Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Newfoundland, and the Irish Free State, came together to witness the passing of one of the most important acts in the history of the British Empire, and certainly in the history of Canada, that being the Statute of Westminster. The Statute of Westminster was an act of Parliament passed in December of 1931, 
which legally established the legislative independence of the dominions within the Commonwealth. Canada was now legally able to pass all of its own legislation through Parliament. It was effectively wholly independent, with a shared loyalty to the Crown and a committed member of the British Commonwealth. Well, almost. Yeah, I know. Well, almost. That's right. See, almost. Because one thing remained. We could not amend our own constitution, that being the British North America Act of 1867. Any amendments to that constitution still had to go through Parliament back in London. But that, my friends, is a story for another time. Regardless, the interwar period brought about rapid change in Canada's role within the British Empire-turned-Commonwealth, and by the 1930s saw its role evolve into an autonomous and equal nation to Britain and to the other dominions, no longer a subordinate colony nation of Mother Britannia. And folks, I am saddened to say that this is the last episode for season four. But fret not, my lovelies, we shall return next September for the start of season five. I want to thank all of our listeners for continuing to support this podcast. We've grown by leaps and bounds this season, and next season is poised to be even better. Have a great summer, everybody. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And I want to thank you all for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Until next time, stay cool. Stay cool.